Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. In 2013, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, embarked on an ambitious effort to modernize its information technology infrastructure, transforming from an agency with 207 different IT systems to one with a cloud-based common data platform that would play a significant role in creating a more dynamic and agile enterprise. This transformation has been orchestrated by the FCC's Chief Information Officer, Dr. David Bray. He understood that making this IT vision into a reality would require introducing a myriad of challenges to how the FCC managed its IT systems and services. It would also involve effecting broader cultural change across the agency's 18 different bureaus and offices. Most importantly, Bray recognized that the current state of IT spend on maintaining existing systems was unsustainable and unacceptable for an organization that was supposed to be at the forefront of 21st century communications technology. The FCC's IT division was lagging behind. What has the FCC done to transform its IT infrastructure? How has the FCC chief information officer cultivated a network of change agents? What is the FCC doing to cultivate a culture of risk-taking and experimentation. We will explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Dr. David Bray, Chief Information Officer within the FCC. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Glad to be here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Dave Hathaway. Dave, welcome. Thank you. David, I'd like to go from general to specific as a way to set context for our conversation. Uh, To that end, perhaps you could provide us with a brief overview of the history, mission, and overall size of the U.S. Federal Communications Commission. So the mission of the Federal Communications Commission dates back to the 1930s, in which we uh, were actually the uh, follow-on for the Federal Radio Commission. So everything wired and wireless within the United States, uh, so whether it's satellite radios, whether it's your ham radio, uh, whether it's anything involving spectrum or how you get that license for spectrum, FCC interacts with the public and with industry to make sure that the interest of the nation is represented. And so anything that's wired or wireless, you can actually see on your wired devices or wireless devices, you'll see an FCC logo. That means it's actually uh, been approved to be used at that spectrum. And so FCC, it's actually fairly small for everything it does. It's only about 750 people. With that, it's, it's a lot of issues ranging from the economics of wired devices to the markets to the spectrum. Hey, and I get, get a sense of the scale of operation. If you can just give it. So you're in a mission support area, a very critical mission support area. How is the organization 
or, uh, organized. What's the size of its budget? Give us a sense of that. And sure. you already mentioned the uh, number of folks that work there. Is there a geographical footprint, or is it largely in D.C.? So there are 18 different bureaus and offices, uh, ranging from wireless to wireline to public safety to consumer space. And the budget's about $388 million. And there are really two main geographical footprints. There's a lot of people here in D.C. There's also a place up in Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And then we have a few field offices around the United States. And um, now you've given us a sense of the larger organization. Um, can you tell us more about your uh, area and your specific role? What are the specific responsibilities and duties of the chief information officer at the FCC? So, uh, yeah, my, my primary duties, I would say, are a digital diplomat and human flag jacket uh, as being the FCC CEO. And, and so what does that specifically entail? How do we actually operate at enterprise scale across the 18 different bureaus and offices? When I arrived, there were 207 different IT systems on premise. So regarding your duties and responsibilities, um, and you kind of alluded to just one, the transformation issue that you're dealing with, what are some of the, say, three top management challenges you've faced since your tenure at FCC, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So I think the first was how do we do what we need to do in terms of transformation in a way that's not just linear incremental updates, but really is game-changing, and at the same time manage the friction associated with it. Uh, Anytime you're going to try and make change, anytime you're trying to do something to make it better, there's still going to be a resistance to doing it because people may be used to the processes or used to user interfaces that were associated with it. And so my big challenge was to demonstrate enough small successive wins building up to a larger win. Uh, and we actually did that with our consumer help desk. So we had a 15-year-old consumer help desk. Uh, it, it literally had 18 different forms that you had to figure out which was the right form to fill out and then mail it or fax it to the FCC and we somehow ingest it. Clearly, we could do a better way. And so part of the change was not just looking at how we could do it better in terms of technology. In fact, that was really only 20% of the issue. It was so that we could actually come up with a better way of doing it so that you didn't actually have to guess which of the 18 forms was the right one. It was almost like TurboTax where you sort of start answering, who are you, what's the nature of your issue? And before you know it, having just filled out six or seven fields, you've now actually completed the actual form without even knowing there was a form. And actually, the interesting thing with that is we were changing processes and people were very resistant up until the point we launched it. And then after we launched it, about three or four months later, some of our biggest people that were resisting it now said this is the best thing that ever happened. Uh, behind the scenes, in terms of actual solution, we actually were able to do it at one sixth the price. It was quoted as being about $3.2 million to do it on-prem, custom development taking about 18 months. We actually did it in less than six months and did it for $450,000 total, including contractor time. So that's the first challenge. The next challenge was... The workforce, both the IT workforce I have, I have about 400 people if you include contractors as well as government people. Um, The IT workforce was feeling disempowered and and sort of just demoralized. But also the Bureau of Offices and our broader public stakeholders were feeling kind of like there wasn't anything good coming out of what was being done in terms of IT at the FCC, to be honest. And that wasn't the case. There was a lot of good happening, but it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is if you don't think anything good's going to happen, then nothing is perceived as being good. Um, our FCC.gov website back in 2010, 2011, was unfortunately launched without a lot of stakeholder input and was actually so bad that and apparently some people might have been called before Congress to testify, could you find things on the website? Because it didn't incorporate good scientific approaches to user design. And so with that, um, also over the last two years, what I've been very intentional about is have a Big Ten approach, bring in stakeholders, both internal and external to the FCC, recognizing that there's a lot of processes baked into what people are used to doing. And when we make the push to technology being better, 
really is just technology is 20%. It's really about making the processes better. The challenge is, is there's so many different views about what the best process should be. We actually have started using scientific approaches where we'll do A, B testing, much like they do in Silicon Valley. We'll actually have card sorting where you can sort what's the most important function to you because if you try to do design by committee, you end up with nobody happy. So you really have to have a scientific approach. And so sort of showing a way that could actually bring our stakeholders in and actually motivate both the stakeholders and the team to think that actually good things are possible, that was really an uphill battle for the first year and a half in my role. And then finally, really just sort of communicating that we need to do things at exponential speed. And what do I mean by that? Well, the broader context of what the FCC is looking at is back in 2013, there were 7 billion network devices on the face of the planet. There were 7 billion human beings. And that was actually an interesting tipping point because the same number of network devices there are humans. Just two years later in 2015, we're now up to 14 billion network devices, only about 7.3 billion human beings. The good news is we're not going up exponentially. By 2020, we're looking at anywhere between 50 and 200 billion network devices. And so even if I modernize the IT at the FCC, which is what we're doing, we have to also think about how do we do the business of the FCC in an exponential era as well. And so that's working very closely with our bureaus and offices. But, but communicating that message and making people actually think that it's not just linear or that it's not just that we can do things incrementally better, we have to do them transformatively better, especially when it's changing processes. That's probably been my hardest challenge, but I think, fortunately, over the last two and a half years, the message is getting out. And, and I know when you're dealing with these kind of challenges, there's always uh, unanticipated and unexpected surprises. So what, what surprised you most uh, since you've taken on this role? Probably the thing that has surprised me the most is the power of a large, committed team of individuals to begin to inspire each other. So when I first arrived... Probably, so I, what I would do is about every three or four months, I'd do a pulse check where usually we would have all-hand meetings, and all-hands meetings is when we'd share what was going on. We'd have different people share what was going on. And every once in a while, I would just throw a curveball where we'd get together for an all-hands meeting. I was like, okay, I'm just going to listen to you all. I'm just going to actually only use Socratic method. And, and the one question I want to ask you all is, how are things going today? How are we doing as a team? And the first time I did it, the team was kind of hesitant. They didn't know exactly what I was going with this, but I said, I really want to hear your opinions. And it was probably about 10 to 15% that were excited uh, there was a sizable majority of about 50%, 45 or 50% that were sitting on the sidelines. And they were honest enough to say, well, your last few predecessors were in and out in less than six to seven months. So why should we put our trust with you? And that was honest of them. And I appreciate that. And then the other ones actually wanted things to go back to the way things were uh, back in 1990s. Uh, and at that point, actually, there was somebody that said, I have a beef. And I was like, okay, can you tell me a little bit more? And the person said, it happened 17 years ago. And I was like... All right, share me more. And it turned out it was when FCC started shifting to having more contractors and government people. And I said, I said, I appreciate your concern. We're all partners in this. Um, how do you think we can work together better? And again, I was only using Socratic method. But in some respects, you just have to get it out on the table because let people share their concerns because that's the only way we can move forward. So that was when I first arrived in the first three or four months. I did it again another six months in, so about 10 months in the job, and we had grown from being 10 to 15% that were optimistic to now about 30%. And then when I did it again, it grew up to probably about a, in my year, year and a half mark, it had gotten past the tipping point of being 50% were gung-ho. The most interesting thing is most recent time I did this, about four months ago, we were now up to 80% were very optimistic. You've kind of alluded to your leadership approach in your sharing of stories. But could you delve a little deeper into it? What uh, Would you outline some of your key leadership principles and perhaps maybe illustrate how you've employed them? Uh, definitely. And actually, the nice thing is uh, I can actually say 
part of when I was doing my dissertation was I was looking for data to actually back what are good leadership styles, particularly in ambiguous or turbulent environments. And what I can say is the data shows there's three things you need to embody as a leader. The first is you need to cultivate a diversity of perspectives. In a rapidly changing environment, if you have a monoculture in which everyone's thinking the same thing, you're going to miss things. And so I actually try to, when I assemble teams, I actually like skeptics. I like dissenters. And I say it's okay that we professionally disagree. I want to have a diversity of views. And that's, that's both diversity of views, cognitive diversity, how we approach things. I mean, if you think about it, Frank Roy Light, wonderful architect, but unfortunately his buildings are falling apart. And so it would have been much better to have Frank Roy Wright with an engineer next to him so they could both inform each other as opposed to just one expert by themselves. The second thing is you need to empower the edge. In a rapidly changing environment, top-down is not going to be able to respond with the speed. If you're actually waiting for the top of the organization to actually figure out what's going on, it's just going to take forever. And so what you really need to do is, if you're at the top or if you're in an executive role, you need to empower your edge as much as possible to have autonomy to adapt and respond. And so one of the things I've been doing at the FCC as well and in past roles is when I call change agents together, I say, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you autonomy. I'm going to give you measurable progress, because the interesting thing is measurable progress helps both me, but also motivates the person. And then finally, a compelling mission. And if you can embody those three things, then I'm going to invest in you, and you can run forward and see what you can do. The third thing that actually you have to do, too, is you have to work horizontally outside of just your own organization. You have to have an ecosystem approach. And so that's partly why I'm on social media. Who has, from a leadership perspective, really influenced your style? First and foremost, I have to say, uh, I have to give credit to my parents. My father's a Methodist minister. My mom's a school teacher. And the older I get, I realize I've become them. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my father's skill set was, uh, he would, his skill sets were two things. He was good at capital planning for churches, as well as healing fragmented congregations, and particularly the fragmented congregation bit, but also the capital planning. Having a strategy, I realized that's what I embody in my role. It's just in a public sector approach as opposed to a church approach, what he would do. And then my mother's side, um, she was the extrovert of the family and the hostess and creating a safe space. So one of the things I've been doing for the last six years outside of work, about every two weeks, is I host an informal, non-attribution, creative brainstorm that's open to anybody, both private sector and public sector. And it's really just a happy hour outside of work. We create it as a non-attribution space so you can feel safe to have conversations that maybe you wouldn't feel having safe. It was on the record. And I really started it because if you're banging your head against the wall as a change agent, it's nice to know you're not the only one. And it's a safe space. But the reason why I highlight that and why I attribute that to my mother is there was a time early on in my dad's career when the bishop was visiting them. And it was the 70s, so fake nails were in style. And her, her thumb caught on fire when she was lighting a candle for the dinner. And most people would blow out that candle and blow out the thumb. But no, she turned with her thumb on fire and looked at the bishop and said, want a light? With her hand on fire. My dad said he, said he saw the, his, his short career pass before his eyes. But I highlight that because if you're not having fun at work and if you can't laugh at what you're doing, something's wrong. And I think that's sort of the embodiment that we try to do is that, you know, yes, we have some very serious things. Yes, we have stressful events, but we need to smile. What has the FCC done to transform its IT infrastructure? We will ask Dr. David Bray, its chief information officer, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diversity of topics and public management issues facing us today. 
Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. David Bray, Chief Information Officer within the FCC. Also joining our conversation today from IBM is Dave Hathaway. David, earlier you mentioned your effort to bring uh, 270 individual legacy systems down to basically none, in a sense. And I, when I was prepping for this interview, I noticed that somebody, whether it was you or somebody who was interviewing you, said it's akin to performing open heart surgery on the IT infrastructure. So with that as the backdrop, could you give us a sense of, uh, of the vision you outlined to modernize the IT infrastructure? What were some of the goals and principles that shaped your efforts? So when I arrived, there were 207 different systems on premise, as mentioned, and they were average age 10 years old. And what was even more disturbing was those systems were consuming more than 85% of our budget just to maintain them. And that was growing each year because the systems were getting increasingly old, increasingly brittle, and you could not find the parts or the software to support them. And so what I really looked at when I came into the scenario after I listened, I spent about three months listening and learning and hearing as much as I could from the different bureaus and offices, is we would have to make a transformational leap. And that transformational leap was in, in two years or less, we wanted to have basically have nothing on-premise anymore. And to get there, we had to do a three-phase approach. The first approach was stabilization, the idea that the patient's bleeding, the patient's not doing too well. We have to at least first stabilize the patient so that we can get the patient walking and eventually running. And that was just doing good IT hygiene, getting good sense of what we've got, just sort of getting good discipline. And we're in things that you would hope to be in place when I arrived that maybe weren't in place. Uh, also with that is when we also began to get the outreach to the bureaus and offices that change is coming and also begin to show that we could do some quick wins. And so one was the consumer help desk where we were able to do it in less than six months when they thought it was going to take 18 months and do it at one sixth the price. We also rolled out um, Office 365 using their complete commercial solution. So it wasn't something that we were hosting on-premise, which gave us web-based email, web-based documents, and we actually did it in less than two months, uh, which was a rather accelerated clip. But that was important because if we were going to get ready for the next step, which was rationalization, and we were actually going to move the servers off-site, we need to at least have the email in place before we actually pulled the plug. Now, along the way, uh, I did try a couple things. Uh, one, I tried to see if Department of Defense would actually host our servers. Uh, but they said they're .mil and we're .gov. They're not quite sure how that's going to work. So I was like, okay, we'll go commercial cloud. Um, also along the way, we tried to make the case that we could get additional funds so we could have double redundancy because we'd like to ideally replicate things. But the challenge is some of our equipment was so old that if we did replication, you're actually looking at spending between 30 to $40 million to replicate it. And then you're going to turn it off anyway once you get on the other side. So we really had to do the quote-unquote open-heart surgery, which was we were going to literally power everything off at the FCC that could not be moved to the cloud right away. Now, we'd still have in place those things that were already were in the cloud, but those things that weren't, pile them to seven different trucks, uh, 400 terabytes of data, and then send them off to a facility somewhere else outside of the D.C. area and then bring them back up. And that would actually require us to know everything we had. And so in some respects, the best thing about the rationalization part and doing the server lift is we actually got a complete inventory of everything we had accumulated over the last 20 years. 
the only time you understand what you have in your house that's 20 years old is when you move to another house. And uh, along the way, we figured out that there had been some things over the, whether it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, someone did a quick fix at the time with the plan of going back to make it more robust, and they never went back. And so there were a lot of different things that you just discovered because you had to get ready to move. So we then focused in on the third stage, which is now we're actually at, and actually is the fun part. We got everything off-site. We now have nothing at the FCC. We've managed to reduce our maintenance spend from being 85% to now being less than 50%. And that gives us the fuel, given that the FCC's budget has not been increased. The last six years has been flat. So we are actually able to find the fuel for modernization simply out of the efficiencies we got out of doing the server lift. And that's now allowing us to now actually figure out for those systems that are so large you can't move them to the cloud directly, we can move the data to the cloud on the legacy system, still use the legacy interface. So it doesn't look like the user that anything has changed, even if the data is actually stored somewhere else. And then begin to do modular approaches where we'll take a component of that system, build it on a cloud platform that's already out there. And so you have them both running in parallel for a while. So for this part of the application, you go here. For this part, you still go to legacy one. And eventually, we actually move the application in total to the cloud platform. It's almost like the way I put it is you take an MD80 that's in flight, and while it's in flight, you want to go out and install some new engines, and before you know it, it's the 777. And so that's what we're going to be doing next. Yeah, so it, it does sound like fun. Actually, that is the fun <laughs> part. The um, so, so you mentioned moving things off-site and operation server lift. Uh, so what were some of the successes, lessons learned, maybe even nail-biting moments about, about that? Don't underestimate the need to build a strong coalition with your team. It, it, it's, you can get all the technology right, but you know there will be something that will go surprise. There will be a hiccup. And what you really want is a strong coalition both with your private sector partners that are helping you make it happen, as well as the government workforce. And you really want them to be intrinsically motivated. The next thing is plan, 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 and then also expect that even though you've planned it to the nth degree, something will still go wrong. Uh, with the server lift, we did have a surprise where we got there and the cabling didn't match the topology that we had at the FCC. And so that took a little bit of time to, to get everything back up. But that actually was one of the, in some respects, best moments because... You know, it could have easily devolved into finger pointing and blame and everything like that. But what happened was both our private sector partners and our government workforce rallied. Uh, we literally bought all the Red Bull probably in the county. Um, and they worked for 40 hours straight with no sleep to get it right. And I think that was, you know, I didn't even have to ask that. They did that on their own intrinsically. And that's when you really feel humbled as a leader when you have a team that is so invested to actually make that happen. And it's, it's a multidisciplinary team, both the private sector and the government folks. They rallied and they got it done right. I often say I reward creative problem solvers. And I think looking back at it, that was actually a solidifying moment for the entire FCC team because now they're, they're almost telling stories about, remember when you were there and we solved this issue, it actually rallied them into one single team. So so you mentioned before the, the common data platform being cloud-based. Um, if you pick it up a level, like what are the benefits and challenges of moving IT systems to the cloud? And, and what do you think other federal agencies can learn from, from what the FCC is doing? I think really what cloud gets you is, first and foremost, is agility. Um, and that's something that's only recently become a requirement for organizations just because the world is changing so fast. We talked about how it's changing exponentially. If you're efficient but you're not fast – you're dead as an organization, whether you're a private sector or a public sector. And so we've had examples already where uh, a bureau and office comes to us with a new requirement. And now that we've got things in the cloud and we have the common data platform, we can show a working prototype in less than 48 hours. 
And they're actually floored because they're like, well, wait, we weren't planning to meet with you until next week. And we're like, we're ready now. The, the second thing is the need for resiliency. Um, there's going to be spikes in user demand. I mean, we had systems about two years ago when I was here at the FCC where with the, the, the proceedings that were happening that were very public and very visible, there was a spike on a 19-year-old system that was just not built for the era of today where there was, it was going from having a normal caseload of 2,000 to jumping to 4 million. Mm-hmm. And so the nice thing about cloud is you can do that, you can virtualize it, and you can spin up additional scenes. And so getting that resiliency, and by resiliency, I also would include to a degree security, recognizing that's a very challenging topic, cybersecurity. And that really, if you want anything perfectly secure on the internet, you probably want to unplug it from the internet and bury it underground and make sure no human touches it, as I, as I want to dis- disclaim as a CIO. But that said, you do want to actually have things in the cloud in some respects because there will be more monitoring and there will be more of a vested interest to making sure they're secure because it's both your interest as well as your private sector partner. And then finally, you get the efficiency. And so we have had a cases where it's generally about one-fifth or one-sixth surprise to do it in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's for new development. For legacy, it's going to take a little bit longer because we have to extract the business processes. But compared to doing something on-premise versus doing it in the cloud, it's about one-fifth or one-sixth surprise. And, and so you mentioned legacy systems, and I know legacy modernization is also a very uh, important topic. And, um, and you've likened um, uh, upgrading legacy systems to that of an iceberg <laughs> and trying to move an iceberg. Uh, what other challenges are you facing uh, regarding legacy system modernization, and, and how are you approaching that? I know I use the iceberg analogy, and I'm going to give you another one in just a second. Uh, the iceberg analogy is the idea that when you modernize technology is the only stuff you see above the waterline. There's all the human processes. There's all the, 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 the workforce, the fact that things are slow and they require a whole lot of people. That's the really hard part. And we usually don't collect those costs. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you ask people how much a system costs, they give you the IT figure, mm-hmm. but they don't talk about what also takes 30 or 40 people to hand feed this information in and everything like that. The other thing that I would also toss out as an interesting analogy to consider too is when I mentioned where we're not going to have what used to be called enterprise architecture and engineering, and so we're going to be calling it cloud integration and catalog, is really thinking about the way we do IT modernization going forward is cloud integration and catalog will give you the definitions of the road. They'll give you the signage, they'll define the road and everything like that. Tailored platforms and data, which used to be systems development, will give you the car. They'll give you the specifications of the car and everything like that. And then we literally let the mission stakeholder get in the car and drive it wherever they want on that road, as long as they don't drive it off the road. And as long as they don't change the car, but we also give them the equivalent of a gas card. The gas card is tied to their consumption. It's being paid out of their budget because, of course, as we know, most cloud services are consumption-based. So if they don't visibly see how much it's costing them, sure, they'll drive back and forth across the country 10 times and say, by the way, I'm out of gas card now. And so it's really about empowering the user to drive the car where they want to go, but also making sure there's some accountability too. Well, you know, you mentioned the term empower. And you also mentioned the human element of doing all this transformation. And you sort of architected a really interesting approach to engaging the agency program areas. And where I'm going is you established a cadre of entrepreneurs. Could you tell us more about the effort? How are you empowering these folks exactly? And what prompted you to go in this direction? So, yes. So, entrepreneurs are our chief change agents uh, working with the different bureaus and offices. And by entrepreneurs, they're, they're entrepreneurs on the inside. They're given autonomy. And it really is a recognition that we should be able to solve problems at the edge. 
that they don't always have to come to the CIO. They don't always have to shout the loudest to me. Um, and in fact, if they do that, I'm probably going to redirect them to the entrepreneur anyway, because the entrepreneur is going to know the context of what the bureau and office is doing. Um, I often say if you've seen one bureau or office at the FCC, you've seen just one bureau and office. They're all very different and they have different needs. And so having someone co-located that understands your context, that actually has the authority and the ability to make decisions there, um, I think is key to being able to deal with scale. And, and you mentioned earlier the little uh, more informal happy hour that you have. And I, I think that kind of dovetails to the change agent. What does it mean from your perspective and in being involved in these little uh, shindigs to be a change agent in the federal government, and what lessons have you learned from this experience? Well, I always like to point out that the founders originally met in bars and that the revolution was planned in <laughs> bars, so this is in keeping with that. Um, being a change agent, I mean, supposedly when the Constitution was signed, Ben Franklin said he could rest easy knowing that the great American experiment will exist for the next 50 years. And I think it's key one, because that was 240 years ago, and two, that he used the word experiment. Because the reality is self-governance is an experiment. And we may need to make additional experiments to address the exponential error we're in. And so being a change agent, I think, is really just a reaction to the stereotype that somehow those people in government don't want to change. And in fact, I think there's a lot of people that are hungry for change. They're just not given the autonomy to do so. And that's, in some respects... The challenge of public service that is unique relative to the private sector is, at least in the private sector, your CEO and your board of directors are all self-contained in the same company. In the public sector, on the other hand, at the federal level, you know, our board of directors are in the legislative branch, which are completely separate from the executive branch, and that's by design, and that we wanted to have checks and balances, and I celebrate wanting to have checks and balances. Um, James Madison, when he wrote in Federalist Papers number 51, he said... You know, he wanted ambition to counter ambition. If all men or women were angels, no government would be necessary. And so I like having checks and balances. The challenge is, is when people complain government's too slow or it takes forever to get something done or you have to build consensus. Yes, but the trade-off is you could have a dictatorship and have no checks and balances. And so which of this do you want? And so I'm trying to submit a new approach, which is we can still have checks and balances, but if we empower the edge, at the edge we can have change at scale and maybe that's the way we keep public service relevant and addressing. Because I do worry, having seen what I saw with the response to 9-11, with the response to anthrax, uh, later Hurricane Katrina in Afghanistan, that if we don't come up with new organizational ways, not just technology ways, but organizational ways of being more agile and more resilient in our exponential era, that increasingly public service, and I do intentionally use the word public service, so it's both public, members of the public, government, and private sector professionals, public service will lose its relevancy. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that means for the future of not just the United States, but the future of the world. What is the FCC doing to foster a culture of risk-taking and experimentation? We will ask David Bray, its chief information officer, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the Securities and Exchange Commission's IT strategy? How is the SEC modernizing its electronic data gathering, analysis, and retrieval system? What is it doing to expand its data analytics capabilities to better meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Pamela Dyson, Chief Information Officer at the SEC. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. 
I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. David Bray, Chief Information Officer within the FCC. Also joining our conversation today from IBM is Dave Hathaway. Uh, David, would you tell us more about your effort to improve the design and capabilities of the FCC.gov website? Perhaps you could outline your web redesign approach and process. Uh, what were some of the challenges you faced, and what are the benefits you've realized thus far? So when I arrived at the FCC, uh, actually, I was being asked both by folks from the from, from Congress as well as folks from the administration saying, were we going to fix the website, quote unquote, because apparently a few years earlier, the website had been designed with, with very little stakeholder input, very little usability testing, and had basically irked a whole lot of stakeholders. And so we had to figure out, you know, because they were some of the people were actually saying, could we go back to the old website, which was still also alive? It was transition.fcc.gov, and it was built in HTML 3.2. And the last thing I really wanted to do is go back to HTML 3.2. Um, that said, we had to figure out a way forward. And so what we were really we had three principles, which was really focusing on one: can we understand the data of what people are actually using? And and what we found out were, was through the data, one, less than 7% of the traffic to FCC.gov was coming in through the homepage, and so we should not just put all our eggs in the basket for the homepage. We should have other things as well. Uh, but we also found that there were other areas for improvements in terms of navigation that the data showed. Two, we wanted to create a big tent where both people from the outside as well as people from the inside could come in, and if they wanted to, they could do card sorting about what are the most important things you're coming to look for for the FCC. That actually informed eventually the design we had where you could actually pick, do you want to navigate by bureau and office, because some people wanted to do that, or do you want to navigate by function, because most members of the public, quite honestly, they don't know the different bureaus and offices. But if you're a big practitioner in the legal profession, you may know the bureaus and offices. So it allows people to pick. Um, but that was where we had people come in. They did card sorting. We also did eye tracking. So where does your I gravitate to the screen, what colors actually navigate, and so it was actually scientifically based. And then third, we wanted to do a much more agile approach to getting the feedback, but recognizing that ultimately at the end of the goal, it was not designed by committee, it was really designed by science. Uh, and actually, we now have metrics that show more than 85% of the visitors to the new website say they prefer it versus the old, which is, I think, a really good metric to have. I mean, aside from the fact that it's good, most people don't go back and say, do you prefer this old website versus a new one? And then two, um, the other 15%, we asked them, we said, well, what could we improve? And some have had some good feedback, and we actually still are continuing to receive feedback that we're feeding into it. But even before we, quote, unquote, launched the website, we had about a six-month period in which we had prototypes.fcc.gov that went initially from a static screenshot to usable functionality all along the way. So it wasn't cold turkey, flip the switch, and all of a sudden, now you have to figure out how to use it. And so we're doing the same thing for other systems as well. We have an electronic commenting filing system, too, where we know we're creating massive change, not so much in the user interface, but more in just how things get done. And so wherever we can get feedback early and often, as opposed to waiting and doing things cold turkey, that, I think, is the most valuable lesson for what we do at the FCC, which is engage your stakeholders. And, um, and would you tell us more about your efforts in replacing the agency's consumer complaint system? Um, How would you go about tackling the issue? What were some of the lessons learned in the effort? So that one I have to give all credit to the change agents. Um, and it was actually our first real embodiment because I think up until then people didn't know what I meant by a change agent. They're like, And actually I've heard later people also said they didn't know what I meant by an entrepreneur. And I said, but now they come back and they say, we now understand. So, you know, part of being a leader is you introduce new vocabulary and then you help people figure out what it is. Um, so with, with the consumer help desk, uh, 
it was a case where we had a change agent by the name of Dusty Lown, uh, who initially was doing just one day a week at the FCC. He was, he actually had his own startup on the West Coast, and he was willing to come in one day a week and just help us out. And we sort of got him hooked in terms of this was an interesting challenge. Uh, we, we sort of... We, we put forward the gauntlet that said, give us a better approach that's not $3.2 million, that is a better approach that won't take 18 months. And it's sort of like, you know, challenge accepted. He was willing to rise that. Chance. He was motivated by that. He shifted from doing one day a week to three days a week to eventually five days a week, and he actually relocated to the D.C. area so he could have that face-to-face. And with that in the process, basically the negotiation with, with Dusty was, give me three reasons why we should do this. And he, he, he laid out a very good case, which is it's going to be faster times of delivery. It's going to be uh, less expense. And even more important, it's going to be able to scale and be more resilient, which is good because we've now had some things happen at the FCC where that system has had increased demand, but we've had no impact whatsoever because we can scale up or down depending on the cloud volume. Um, but I also asked him, I said, give me three reasons why we shouldn't. And so the three reasons why he shouldn't, he told us was, it's changing the existing processes, it's changing the existing forms, and the stakeholders really like the old system. And so I said, okay, then give me three ways Three ways we're going to mitigate it. And so I worked them through with that too, which I said, okay, Dusty, get to a working prototype as quickly as possible. So it gets from being this abstract debate as to whether it's good or bad so they can actually see it, to I said, if anybody complains, send them to me. I'll be the one to listen to them. I mean, I'm going to listen them out. I'm going to be very polite. But I said, Dusty, your job is to move as quickly as possible to get this released. I'll be the flak jacket. And then finally, the, the other way we're going to also mitigate it is we're just going to, at a certain point in time, we're just going to have to flip the switch. you know. And so it was a wonderful example of putting in practice all those culture change, the human dimension, as well as empowering a team member and then actually heralding when he was successful and saying all credit goes to Dusty. Because then that allowed us to actually get other talent. I mean, as a result, Dusty was successful. We ended up with about probably about seven or eight other change agents who signed up right afterwards because they saw here was an environment in which they could actually see change that matters and actually get it done in public service. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, cybersecurity. The, the FCC IT's highest priority is a safe, secure environment for performing this, the commission's uh, mission. With, with rising cyber threats, um, what's being done to strengthen the FCC IT posture in uh, cybersecurity? So that's probably the thing that keeps all CIOs up at night uh, because we know the nature of the Internet is... A very challenging one. Um, so I would say on cybersecurity, partly why we didn't move to the cloud and commercial service providers is we just could not provide the extent of IT security by ourselves if we did everything on-premise. Uh, I know a lot of people, there's still some 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 CIOs that will say, well, clearly if it's on-premise, you can do it better. And I was like, well, no, actually, <laughs> I only have 750 people at the FCC. Uh, of that, I only have about 400 that are doing IT. Uh, even if I took all 400 people, that will not match the investment of several large consumer clouds in terms of their IT security professionals, and they can also pay their people more. Um, and so... Yes, I have an interest and I have due diligence to make sure that what is being offered and provided by the consumer commercial offerings match what we need, and we need to have some penetration testing and, and make sure we have scans in place. But in terms of actual using the advantages of scale, um, moving to a commercial cloud environment actually gets me many, many more IT service security professionals than I could possibly ever get to the FCC. And it's actually then it's, a, it's alignment of both the private sector's interest, which is obviously they want to do business and be reliable, and it's also our interest, which is we want to have that secure environment. Mm -hmm. And so that at the time, I think when I first came forward with that about two years ago, I think a lot of people thought I was a heretic, which usually means I'm doing my thing. Um, but now I think more and more you're seeing, I mean, we know already, uh, DOD recently actually has now a commercial service cloud offering for the Nippernet. Uh, we're seeing more and more departments and agencies recognize that really 
with with few exceptions, the commercial cloud solutions, if done right, will be more secure than anything we could do on-premise. So how are you fostering a culture of risk-taking and experimentation while also taking seriously the consequences of both? And what challenges have you encountered uh, in fostering this, such a culture? So we definitely want people to take risk. Um, we obviously want most of those risks also work, which is always a challenge because, you know, if you're taking a risk, it's not going to say work. So I think the solution we have is for things that are particularly risky, make sure you, one, have different backup plans. And so that's why I always ask people, what are three reasons why we should do this, but also three reasons why we shouldn't and how we're going to mitigate it. So make sure you have backup plans. Uh, but then, two, make sure if it's a risk, make sure you can pivot quickly. And I think these are the same lessons that, that you see in Silicon Valley, which is, if something's not working, don't fall prone to the sunk cost bias and keep pouring more money into it. If it's not working, pivot quickly. Um, and make sure you have good communication, both laterally and then up the chain, so if we need to make an adjustment, we can do it real quickly. Uh, the other thing that we've also done that has been really successful at the FCC is we do what's called the boardwalk meetings. And what is that? Well, when I first arrived, I actually put outside my office, I put a big chart and say, what, what are our strengths, our weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, the SWOT analysis? And I invited everyone, if they wanted to, they could show up and they could write whatever they wanted. They could do it after hours. It was meant to be a chance for anyone to share anonymously what they thought. And I found, interestingly enough, that nobody took the time to write on the board, but they sent the time to email me what their thoughts were so I could put it on the board for them. And I was like, this is odd. What's going on here? <laughs> and, and what I found out was the, 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 my predecessors, apparently there had been some cases where some of my predecessors had shouted publicly at people as to why they were wrong on certain issues. And so nobody actually wanted to step forward and share a view for fear of being shouted in public. And I was like, I'm not going to shout at you. That's not my belief structure. Um, so... I had to model for the team that it was okay to raise different views and they weren't going to be shouted out. And so we started the boardwalk, which was on Mondays and Thursdays for 20 minutes, just for 20 minutes. We have this big chart that has the top 10 things we're doing at the FCC. We have the owner of the issue, so it would be someone other than myself. We have what are any things that's going on with it, are there any concerns, are there any fixes, and what's the next milestone? And we basically just ask them to get up and actually do a quick two to three minute presentation about what they're doing. And the first time we did this about a, two years ago, uh, people were, were, were unsure about this. And I said, well, this will be a chance to just sort of share what you're doing, have everyone hear it. And if it needs to be made a decision now, we can do it. Um, but now those are one of our most widely attended events. So, so it starts, starts at 1130. So 11.25, nobody's there. By 11.30, all of a sudden, it swarms to being about 50 or 60 people. Um, not everyone's present because some people are working. We're also streaming them, so you can also watch them on, watch them on your desktop. Uh, but people show up. We cap it to 20 minutes. So if you don't get everything done in 20 minutes, then we stop and we'll say, we'll pick this back up the next Thursday or next Monday. Uh, but it really is a situational awareness where it's okay for us to say, this calling thing is not working out. Do we need to do something about it? Do we need to have someone else coordinate on it? And it's and most recently, there's been cases where people will raise issues and someone will say, I can help with that, or they'll sort of group swarm. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a shared boardwalk. But what's also interesting is we've also evolved a set of rituals after the 20 minutes. So when the 20 minutes ends, the team actually started doing visual thank yous to people that have been a creative problem solver in the last week. Uh, someone actually brought a uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, 
and called him a Thankosaurus Rex. And the goal is whoever gets the Thankosaurus Rex that was recognizing for what they do, but the next week they have to give it to somebody else. But you also have to decorate the, the uh, T-Rex. And so the T-Rex has now gotten some interesting costume designs. We also have a Simper Gumby. We have a Gumby figure, and that's for the one that's the most flexible and things like that. Yeah. So so we, we, we've developed these rituals that I think to me is just great because it's the team talking to each other. It's not just a team talking to me. And I can step back and I can see they're having conversations. And so... I think the way we've really addressed risk is by constant communication amongst each other, constant problem solving, and it's a shared team activity as opposed to an individual activity. So uh, data analytics, government executives are demonstrating measurable improvements in programs by integrating data-based analytics and decision-making. So can you share with us a bit on how you're using analytics to not only improve service quality, but also to identify new solutions, uh, new services for the FCC? Right. So... um, I would say there's probably two dimensions of what we're doing with data. Uh, The first is this year we're going to be very intentional about rolling out some products that will allow sort of do-it-yourself business intelligence for others at the FCC. And we've already had one success with our Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau. Um, Now we have some other bureaus doing it. In fact, I found that as we started rolling it out, it's almost like everybody wants it now. And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) success breeds more success, I guess, but or more demand. Um, So that's going to empower our end users to be able to visualize uh, see data both on the private, in the FCC side, but also on the public side as well. Because really, IT should not be in the business of actually designing those business analytics for them. And it's being done in a way that actually we can have confidence that the right people are using the right data in the right format. So that's the first one. So it's do-it-yourself business analytics. The second one is behind the scenes, now that we've done operation server lift, we can actually get much more granular metrics about utilization across our servers. We actually have already been able to retire 22 different racks Mm -hmm. because we can actually say, well, those servers aren't needed anymore or things like that. And so... By moving to a commercial service provider, that actually forces us to clean house so we have a better sense of our infrastructure. We've also implemented an approach where um, when I first arrived, actually, there was no visibility into our service center in terms of the calls that people were receiving, the nature of the calls. And now we actually have a breakdown by hour in terms of the volume of calls received, volume of calls solved, as well as the nature by day in terms of the context of the calls. And we're actually mapping that to previous weeks and previous days. So you can say an average Monday in the FCC looked like this. We're either above or below that. We can ask a question of why. We can see the weekly trend. And so that's actually serving as an early diagnostic tool if something's going on across the bureaus and offices where in the past it might take enough calls and then someone pieces it together, we can actually use a data-driven approach to say something may be going on, maybe it's a patch you apply, maybe something else that rolled out. You can actually have that information feed from our consumer, sorry, from our internal help desk to feed better service to our stakeholders. Mm, that's great. And uh, David, what is crowdsourcing and how are you folks using it? Uh, so crowdsourcing is there are certain ways you can design challenges or problems to be solved in such a way that they benefit from having many more eyes or many more approaches or views on them. And so at the FCC, we launched the FCC speed test app uh, about two years ago. And that was an example of in the past, we were paying for installations in homes, installations in cars to actually test broadband signal strength, Wi-Fi signal strength. And by making an open source app, we could actually invite the public if they wanted to to participate and actually feed into that uh, and actually share data anonymously. Now, we made it by design that you could look at the app, you could look at the code, and you could see by design, since the code was open source, we don't know who you are within a five-mile radius, 
and we don't know your IP address. So it's almost like privacy baked in by design. We made the code open source to actually allow anyone to look at it. And as a result, by making it open source as opposed to closed door, we actually for a while were the fourth most downloaded app on the iOS store. So uh, that was actually a first for public service. And so I think that shows that the public is hungry to do things that in the past government had to do because it just, I mean, packet latency in the 1700s was three days by horseback and that was one way. You know, we're, we're not in an age anymore. So, um, so, so I think that's why I'm intentional about using public service because I think there are things that in the past government had to do just because we didn't have the connectivity that you can make available to the public if they want. I mean, if you look at it in some respects, Representative democracy is crowdsourcing. Um, and so you can actually put things forward and have the public get involved to actually help out with solving some of these harder problems. Uh, we also hope, you know, obviously when we're looking at design of the website, but other functionalities too with the new electronic commenting filing system, that by crowdsourcing inputs and feedbacks, it will actually be better than any one person could do by themselves. What emerging technologies hold the most promise for improving the work done by the FCC? We will ask its CIO, Dr. David Bray, and our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What is the Securities and Exchange Commission's IT strategy? How is the SEC modernizing its electronic data gathering, analysis, and retrieval system? What is it doing to expand its data analytics capabilities to better meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Pamela Dyson, Chief Information Officer at the SEC. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. David Bray, Chief Information Officer within the FCC. Also joining our conversation today from IBM is Dave Hathaway. So, David, how has the role of the Chief Information Officer evolved into that of a trusted business advisor or a trusted advisor? And from your perspective, what are the, what are the key characteristics of a successful CIO? So I think CIOs have, if you look at the progression, I mean, we, we, we actually came out of the mainframe days when mainframes were actually first and foremost being used by chief financial officers. And so it used to be that CIOs reported to chief financial officers, um, and then maybe they start reporting, reporting to chief operating officers. And now I think it has become so critical to any organization, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, 
to have a sense of not just the IT that you're doing, but how you're using it strategically to be more agile, to be more resilient and be more efficient, that a good CIO, if they don't speak the language of business and don't speak the language of the mission, um, they're missing the boat, in my opinion, if they only see their job as being infrastructure. And so one of the things that I think for successful CIOs is to look at your position description as basically just the the initial table stakes for what you then need to exceed expectations and do bigger on. And so at least at the FCC, uh, we were very fortunate uh, with the chairman and the commissioners that we have. They were willing to actually recognize that, that the CIO role needed to be more than just IT. It actually needed to think about transformation across the agency. I think for fellow CIOs, the interesting question is, what do you want to keep as your own secret sauce for your organization? And what things do you want to rely on an ecosystem approach or a network approach? Um, at the FCC, obviously, we chose to do 100% commercial cloud, and I think that makes sense for us. I think that's probably true for a lot of private sector companies too, but that's a hard change for any organization to make a shift from because they're still used to doing everything by themselves, and I think that's just not fast enough. Mm -hmm. So to what extent can collaboration and partnerships drive innovation? To a huge degree. In fact, I would say uh, probably looking back, if we were to look back 10 years from now on this era, I would say this is the shift from the era in which single organization or siloed organizations could do everything self-contained to an era in which it has to be networked. And so it really is identifying what makes your node on the network unique or your node in your organization unique, and then how do you partner with other nodes in the network to get things done. Um, the story that I think did not get enough play last year was the interesting trend in which you now have Anonymous and ISIL, both non-state entities, actually in conflict with each other. Neither is a nation-state entity. And so it raises an interesting question about, you know, where are nation states even going? And I don't want to get too far out there except to say that as things become more global, um, there will always be a need for local level action and things like that. But as things become more global, are nation states in some respects, if they operate in the old way they used to, are they really just middlemen? And do we need to think of them more as network bridges between the local and the global? And how do we actually evolve that as a way moving forward? And so I think collaboration partnerships are essential. The challenge is, is how do you make sure they're not collaboration partnerships by committee, mm -hmm. but it really is much more the change agents approach where you're empowering the edge and you're not waiting for permission to do things, but you have a common narrative and a common and sort of almost common protocol in some respects where I give you autonomy and so you can act without waiting for the committee to give approval. And um, technology is changing and evolving rapidly. And, you know, and that trend continues. What are the emerging technologies that hold the most promise for, for you at the FCC and then also kind of more broadly in the federal government? So I'm probably going to answer that from a all sectors perspective because I, I don't know if there's anything particularly unique to the public sector. But I would say the most interesting uh, trend I see is the application of machine learning uh, to organizations. Uh, in particular, uh, Clearly, human beings, in some respects, there's even more demand for our time. We have increasingly shortened attention spans. Uh, we still have to go home and eat and sleep, and ideally, we have lives. And, and so can we have things that, that used to be done by humans, can we have them be done by machines? Um, and it may sound far-fetched, except when you look at what's being done with Surrey, IBM Watson, Cortana, there actually was a competition even just three years ago 
to see if anyone could write an algorithm that would grade papers as good as a third grade teacher would in terms of finding the same sentence mistakes, grammar mistakes. And for $60,000, actually someone won that competition. And, and so if you think about what we do in public service, there's a lot of things that we do that are rote in nature, partly because we have to be fair. Um, sort of the job classification process, the job advertising process. Could we actually give those things a machine as opposed to having humans involved? We could even make the, the, the code open source in some respects so you could be assured that the hiring process is fair. But is that a way of actually accelerating the hiring process so we can be much faster? Uh, same thing in terms of maybe even requests for proposals or RFPs. I mean, uh, supposedly when the U-2 spy plane was done in the 1950s, it was only two pages for the U-2 spy plane. Uh, I would challenge you now to see a two-page RFP out there anywhere. Um, and so I, I hold out hope, but it's going to require experiments. Uh, again, it's, it's if we go back to the quote that you have to get experiments to get expertise, um, I would love to see more and more approaches to take things that used to be done 100% by humans and maybe they're either partially done by machines plus humans in the loop together or 100% done by machines. Mm. So, David, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? I think I'm going to quote uh, actually a, a, a phrase that was actually shared to me, uh, the Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Stephanie O'Sullivan who said, it is going to be a career in which you will feel all spectrum of emotions, but it will also be the best career you're going to have. And so I actually would say for public service, um, especially if you're doing it right, you will never be bored. If you're bored in public service, you've not taken up the right mantle. And I'm more than happy to find and help people find opportunities if they find themselves bored. Um, public service is, is, again, going back to James Madison and the Federalist Papers, it is the greatest reflection of humanity. Uh, you really see the entire spectrum of all the good, the mundane, the not so good that human beings do. Um, but it really is a cause bigger than yourself. And it can be an interesting rallying call. And it's n been never more important in some respects to take on the mantle of public service because we are in that period of exponential change. Um, if you think about it, the printing press predated the Treaty of Westphalia by about 200 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so would we not be surprised that the internet, which akin to the printing press, is new ways of sharing information, new ways of organizing, if this is going to require us to come up with new ways of organizing that still have checks and balances, that still stand for freedom and what we actually embody in the United States, but we have to figure out how to do that. And the only way you can do that uh, is really from the inside. Uh, I actually, you, you asked the question about who inspired me. I had a mentor by the name of Garland Richmond who when I actually, back in my college career, after my second year, I decided to do Habitat for Humanity and be a crew lead for a while. He said, you can go and do that. Just remember, you will always make a bigger difference on the inside than you will as the outside. And so here I was traveling to other countries, and I, it, it felt good, but I did recognize I was an outsider. And I now see what he means, that if you really want to change the system, if you really want to actually make a difference, you have to take the time to understand the narratives. You have to take the time to understand what's the current existing stream of consciousness of the system, and then be very strategic about what disruptions you do, what leadership activities you do. If you want to make lasting change, you have to do it as an insider. And I think that is key right now, because we do need to change. And if we don't have people accepting the mantle of doing leadership in public service and doing transformation, we're going to fall behind. Mm -hmm. Great way to end it. Thanks for coming in today. It's good to see you. I appreciate your time. But more importantly, Dave and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, I'm humbled. Thank you, Michael and Dave. And it really is a team sport. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. David Bray, 
Chief Information Officer within the Federal Communications Commission. My co-host today from IBM has been Dave Hathaway. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.